All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Chapter 5, Supplemental Episode 4, an interview with Rob Glazer. Rob was and is the founder and CEO of Real Networks. If you were around in the 90s, then you'll probably remember Real Audio and Real Video and the Real Media Player. In the age before broadband, Real Networks pioneered streaming media on the web. Quite simply, the early web would not have been multimedia at all without Reel, and by the 90s, fully 85% of the streaming audio and video on the web was Reel Media. But Rob was also an early Microsoft executive, so the interview starts out with Rob giving us some fascinating stories about being recruited to join Microsoft in the early 1980s, as well as his work with the successful relaunch of Microsoft Word and Excel in the mid-80s. One quick personal note here. Towards the end of this conversation, it may seem like I'm sort of rushing Rob off the air. Well, this was another case where I only had a specific and finite amount of time to speak with Rob. He's the CEO of a publicly traded corporation, after all, so his time is, of course, precious. This interview, in fact, took two months and seven different reschedulings to pull off, so... I'm grateful for the time that Rob was able to give us. Believe me, I would have spoken to him for as long as he would have gone on, but there were literally assistants over his shoulder making the wrap it up sign. But it's a fabulous oral history, and there's plenty of never-before-heard stuff in here, so enjoy Rob Glazer. Rob Glazer, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Uh, great to be with you today. Rob, I wanted to start off with uh, going into a little bit of your background at Microsoft. Did you did you join Microsoft right out of college? Uh, basically, yeah. I, I uh, took uh, two degrees uh, in 1983. Uh, one was a bachelor's degree in computer science, and the other was a master's degree in economics. I probably knew more about the PC than the average college grad in 1983 because I started my first company uh, when I was in college. Um, I worked for IBM in the summer of 1981, uh, which by luck happened to be the summer the IBM PC was announced. 
And although I was not working in the geographic part of IBM that was associated with the PC, that was in Boca Raton, Florida, and I was in Poughkeepsie, New York. Turned out one of the members of the team that I was working with at IBM uh, was a PC hobbyist who was a sort of an extended member of that team. So after the PC came out, he was quite open about the history of the pro IBM PC project, and I got excited about it. So I kind of got excited about PCs uh, early on. Uh, I had not not owned an Apple II or anything like that. I did, couldn't uh, afford one, but I I did have a I did program on my uh, high school. Uh, we time shared with the neighboring high schools. Uh, mini computer, which was a, a DEC PDP 1134. So I'd done some interactive programming through that, and then I owned the computing device that I own was a uh, a text instrument uh, uh, calculator. Uh, there was a programmable calculator with I believe 240 instructions in mm -hmm. um, a binary opcode. So that had been the extent of my ownership of computers before. But I was doing a computer science degree, so obviously I knew a reasonable amount about how to program computers. And when the IBM PC came out, I got very excited about the PC, um, and it just sort of seemed to me, I was more of a luck thing than a you know, deeply informed thing, that uh, this was going to be a big deal. Uh, and so with some friends, we, uh, we wrote games, uh, wrote two games. Uh, I wrote most of one, and a friend of mine wrote, uh, wrote the other one and wrote some common libraries that we shared across the games. Um, and uh, there were four or five of us in the company, and uh, that was my summer job for the summer of 82. So when I came time to, to graduate in the spring of 83, I was pretty sure I wanted to do something related to PCs, didn't know exactly what. Uh, and uh, Steve Ballmer and Paul Allen came to the Microsoft, came from Microsoft to the uh, Yale campus in the spring of 83. And I'd heard of Paul, I don't think I'd heard of Steve, since Paul was the co-founder of Microsoft, um, and uh, interviewed with Paul, uh, as it turned out. And uh, they, uh, they asked uh, me, along with a number of my other classmates, to come back to uh, uh, Bellevue, the Seattle area, for uh, follow-up interviews. And so in uh, middle of April of 1983, I did and was offered a job, and I accepted it. And I, uh, I started at Microsoft, uh, I think it was June 15, 1983, um, and uh, had a great 10-year run there. And you were involved in, in some of the things like the, the successful relaunch of, of the Word and the, the Excel platform, right? Yeah, so I spent the first four years or so in Microsoft in the applications business, uh, then a couple years in computer networking, and then about the last two or four years working on multimedia systems and the set of advanced systems. So more on the on the product uh, side of things uh, than the, the, the but the uh, sort of at the intersection of the of the technical and the product management and the the business management product side. Uh, my in my first year there, I was involved with some products that had been developed. Uh, by jointly by Microsoft and some outside parties, probably the most famous one, although I didn't spend that much time on it, was Microsoft Flight Simulator. I was also involved with uh, uh, a project management product called Microsoft Project, which is uh, one of these, you know, uh, several hundred million dollar businesses inside Microsoft nowadays that kind of nobody knows about, just that's been plugging along for years. Uh, and I, I, I'll start and build that business within Microsoft. Uh, then I was involved in a, a couple other products. And then in the summer of 84, I was asked to help relaunch Microsoft Word, and that was sort of the, um, uh, the, the first kind of uh, thing that Microsoft really cared a lot about that I was asked to, to, to play a, a significant role in. Uh, and we were successful at taking Word from a kind of an also-ran position um, at the time. Uh, now, this is back in the DOS world. This is before Windows and before Office. Right. Uh, but Word, Word went from a number, probably number five in the category to a pretty strong number two behind WordPerfect. Um, and that was through a combination of product innovation and uh, 
the right kind of marketing around it. Uh, uh, we were the product was a, a brilliant piece of technology. A famous guy named Charles Simone had taken the uh, word processing technology that he built at Xerox Park called Bravo. Uh, Bravo X was the word processor, I believe. And Charles had uh, uh, come to Microsoft to do productivity applications based on graphical user interface, uh, which of course was what the Xerox Star uh, was the pioneer that every, all of the modern PC environments, be it the Mac or Windows, uh, all heavily borrowed from uh, the innovations of, at Xerox. And uh, in fact, in the day, I remember one of the cool things, Microsoft had uh, one of the original uh, Xerox stars, which uh, sat up in a room and uh, it was, I don't know, it's like an $80,000 system or something. And it was incredibly slow and it took about 20 minutes to boot. And I remember it took about 15 minutes to shut down. It was not anybody's current view of modern interactive computing uh, from a, a, a lot of the sort of out, a sort of a implementation characteristics, but it had the mouse, it had the graphical interface, it had the bitmap display, and it had laser printer support. And that was highly relevant because Word was the first word processing product to really intrinsically take advantage uh, of uh, laser printers and to have internal resolution of the document be uh, be at, at the uh, uh, at the uh, at the at the pixel level, really at the uh, at the at the uh, topography level, rather than at the uh, at you know the, the kind of the the typewriter type model that early word processors that were based on on uh, fixed uh, fixed size fonts uh, were uh, were mostly focused on. So Word had a technical advantage that was quite deep in its bones, and we partnered with some of the early laser printer companies like the HP uh, LaserJet to bring that to life. And between that and sort of smoothing out some of the rough edges of the product, uh, we were able to bring it up to a strong number two position. Um, so that I did that, and then I ran program management for all the applications, uh, and then I got involved in the networking part of Microsoft, um, which was a fascinating lesson for me because it was worked with a great team of people uh, who went on to do uh, many, many important things within Microsoft and within the industry as a whole. But that project was not successful uh, in its initial form because it was based on the OS2 operating system. Uh, so it was a network, a suite of network products and services based on OS2. We had the land manager, we had a database product. Um, and uh, so that was a, it was a very interesting learning experience. I learned a ton that ended up being super helpful during the growth of the internet um, and set, set us up, I think, well to do what became real networks. Right. Uh, but th that was itself not a successful uh, initiative, uh, but uh, uh, we learned a lot. And then I spent the last three or four years uh, working on uh, uh, what we called multimedia systems, uh, which had two parts. Where one was sort of building all the multimedia subsystems, uh, 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 audio, motion, video, etc., that got put into Windows on the one hand, and then trying to create very early forms of derivative digital devices uh, that were uh, uh, that were two, way before their time, as it turned out, but we didn't know that at the time, uh, to try to leverage a lot of the technologies that we had in different device formats, um, be it uh, TV-attached devices or be it uh, um, uh, uh, small uh, uh, portable devices. And so I did that, those combinations for my last three or four years at Microsoft before uh, deciding to pull a periscope up in the spring of 1993. Right. Well, that's that's my next question for you is, 
I, I believe you're exactly age 30 and, and you're the, the youngest at that point, youngest ever VP at Microsoft. So, so what made you? I don't know, youngest ever because uh, probably Bill and Steve gave themselves VP titles when they were 23, but okay. I, I was the youngest at the time and right. I'm guessing since. Yes, that's right. So what, what, what was it that made you want to put the Periscope up, as you say? Was it just you, you got the entrepreneurial bug? I, I would say it was three things. Uh, that's one. Uh, my dad uh, started a company. He uh, had a small printing company in New York, uh, and I saw him uh, run that company. It start, he started it a year or two before I was born, and he ran it uh, all my life until he retired, uh, uh, actually after I moved out to Seattle, Microsoft. So he probably retired about 1990. Um, and so I, I sort of saw his, uh, uh, his, his, his entrepreneurial um, experiences and just worked vacations and the like to help him out. So I kind of was, um, was sort of raised by an entrepreneur. Uh, we didn't call it that at the time. He was a small businessman, but it's a similar thing. Uh, then uh, that's one thing. Second, uh, I, uh, when I joined Microsoft, I loved it. I had a great experience. When I got there, Microsoft was a, about a $50 million company in sales, about 250 people. It was uh, fast. It was freewheeling. Uh, they give a, a kid in his 20s. I was 21 when I got there. As you said, I was 30 when 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 Bill uh, chose to make me a VP. Uh, so I, I was able to really do a ton, uh, learn a lot, have a lot of great experiences. And uh, but by the by the by the uh, uh, early 90s, it was clear that Windows was ascendant. Windows uh, uh, 3.0 and 3.1 had shipped. Uh, all the technology that my, the multimedia stuff we built uh, became the foundation for, for for all that stuff in, in Windows 3.1. Windows 95 hadn't shipped yet, but it seemed pretty clear that Windows was about to run the table um, in uh, next generation uh, uh, computer platforms. And uh, and I, I I kind of was thinking, well, I may want to get involved with something more nascent uh, uh, where there's more um, degrees of freedom to kind of move the meter. And the third was that my interests were always more at the intersection of technology, media, and communications than just technology. Microsoft's an amazing company. As I said, I had 10 great years there. I've still many, many friends from that era. Some friends are still associated with the company. And uh, uh, and it was a, a great run, but Microsoft was fundamentally, uh, you know, about a computer on every desk and in every home. Uh, and I was much more interested in the intersection between computing and communication and media. In addition to my computer stuff, I had started a radio station when I was in high school. I was editorial editor of the student newspaper in college. Uh, so I had this te interest in media and communications as well. Uh, and uh, uh, the, 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 the stuff that I was in, I'd say, to this day, 20 years later, uh, interested in uh, were, uh, if you looked at the Venn diagram of my interest in Microsoft's uh, focus at that time, there was significant overlap, but it wasn't a bullseye. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll do something that's more of a bullseye uh, if I start with a blank sheet of paper. So is is Progressive Networks, which is what the company was known before it, it became Real Networks, was Progressive Networks from the from the start uh, up uh, an attempt to do communications and 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 things on the web, or or were, were you already rolling when the web sort of takes off, and so then it's it's sort of kismet. Uh, well, it was definitely kismet, but uh, it wasn't completely random. 
So in the uh, spring of 93, I left uh, technically did a leave of absence, uh, uh, they, which was what, uh, what they asked me to do and was, seemed like it would be uh, uh, fine to do it that way. I didn't think I was likely to come back. I ended up in the fall of 93, ended up doing a little consulting for, for Bill and a few projects that were uh, hopefully helpful to them and certainly uh, interesting to me because it got me learning about some stuff that was interesting to me. Uh, but I, I had sort of two areas of focus. One was all this interactive TV stuff that people were talking about. And you wouldn't necessarily remember it now, but in the early 93, late 92, 93, there was all this hype about the 500 channel universe. Time Warner had this very significant experiment they were doing in Orlando, Florida. Right, the in the full service network, exactly. Other cable companies, TCI, announced that they had paid a purchase order to buy a million digital set-top boxes over the next year. Uh, Viacom, which at the time owned cable companies as well as, uh, as media properties, were doing a big tr interactive trial in Castor Valley. So there was all of this uh, hype around that world. And so I thought, I, I thought well, I'm going to go learn about that world. And I also thought I'm going to learn about the future of online services. I'd been the, one of the other projects I built at Microsoft was called Microsoft Access, not the database product. It was an earlier use of the name, mm -hmm. and it was a communications product. And it automated communication for online services. So it was a combination of a, uh, of a serial communications product with a scripting language. So we could automate having uh, scripting access to uh, sort of make create human interfaces for the likes of CompuServe. Uh, I believe we supported... Uh, uh, AOL, um, uh, Prodigy, and the like. So I, I was a sort of a fan of online uh, communities and communication. You know, given my uh, interest in in, uh, the, in that from from uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier from a, from an earlier uh, interest, uh, I was kind of woven into that. Uh, so I thought, well, what's the future of the online world? Uh, and uh, and then I got very lucky uh, uh, in a funny uh, chain of events. Uh, one of the, the friends I built, developed in business is this brilliant guy named Mitch Kapoor, uh, who may or may not have already been featured in your series. If not, he should be. Uh, yeah, uh, right. Total visionary guy uh, who understood the importance of the web uh, earlier than anybody I knew and understood the importance of, uh, of all of these social and public policy and community issues. Mitch had started a foundation called the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which was focused on these issues. And Mitch asked me if I would consider getting on the board of it. And uh, uh, I was at this point officially on leave from Microsoft, but uh, not thinking I was going to go back. So I traveled abroad for a couple months. And uh, then in late May, I think it was around Memorial Day weekend, uh, I went to an EFF board meeting. Uh, and I think it was in Austin, Texas. Uh, that sounds, that rings a bell. And at that meeting, uh, one of the uh, members of the EFF board, a guy named Dave Farber, uh, crowded everyone around his uh, laptop, I think it was uh, a, a Mac, uh, and he said, hey, you got to try this mosaic thing. And so he showed us an early prototype of uh, what was called then called NCSA Mosaic. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had heard a little about the World Wide Web. I knew a bit about Waze and Archie and all of these things that were distributed, uh, hypermedia things. And, and in fact, one of the things that I worked on uh, was hypermedia systems that were uh, sort of hypercard-like. They were single-device uh, hypermedia systems. And so the idea of distributed hypermedia had been out there for a long time, and I thought it was interesting. Uh, and literally, when he showed us this, this mosaic, I was knocked away. I was like, okay, I've just seen the future. 
and it was really lucky because, you know, I, I wasn't following research being done at the NCSA Supercomputer Center in Champaign-Urbana, but early webheads uh, like Dave Farber, who was really one of the fathers of the Internet, he was uh, in, uh, not, not, not at the Bob Conner Van Cerf level of the IP protocol, but very early on in the original interconnectivity of academic research machines. Dave was a professor for many years at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and uh, so, so uh, Dave said, you got to try this mosaic thing. And it was like, okay, I've seen the future. So I came back from that. And even though I still explored the interactive TV stuff and kind of let it play out, I, I decided, all right, I'm going to get, I'm going to learn everything I can about this new online world. So I found a little ISP in Seattle that would let me set up a slip account. Uh, it was, uh, it was a, 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 a TCP dial-in, little ISP called Halcyon. Uh, I got the uh, phone company to put an ISDN, uh, I think a dual bonded ISDN line into my home uh, so I could experience the dial-up web, uh, not just at 14.4 speed or those hot new modems that were 28.8 at the time, but I could actually experience it at something like, you know, what would be early broadband speeds. You know, a dual bonded ISDN was mm -hmm. slow, but much faster than 14.4 or 28. I think it was like 128K or something. Um, and uh, so I downloaded Mosaic, got all the stuff configured and set up. Uh, and it was like, all right, this is amazing. Because you go to the NCSA uh, Mosaic site, and I've heard other people like Jeff Bezos, uh, who saw the same thing in the summer of 93. And it was it was like watching... Uh, sort of, uh, you know, massively rapid viral propagation. The, the once new MCSA, NCSA Mosaic webpage would list what all the new sites people were building. And at first, when I got on, there'd be like two a week. Then there'd be like seven or eight a week. Then there'd be like two or three a day. And they were, most of them were research projects at an institution. Most of them weren't that commercial. Uh, but they were, uh, it was clear that something magical was happening. And I thought, wow, how lucky is it that I happen to have my periscope up at the dawn of a new communication medium? So uh, in the, this is now, you know, getting into the, uh, the summer and fall of, uh, of 93. Uh, I thought, well, how do we do for audio and video what, uh, what the web browser is doing for text? And one of Mark Andreessen's uh, 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 innovations, which was a real innovation of Mark in the TV and NCSA Mosaic, was the image images, tag right so they they i thought well they, they've done this great thing for text and still images how do we plug into that to add uh rich media time-based media to that and i because i'd done all the multimedia infrastructure software i knew a lot about audio and video compression i knew a reasonable amount about network protocols and so uh, it seemed to me that we could do something impactful uh if, if we invented the right technology and so i then uh i would say by the at that point, by the late summer, early fall of, of 93, I felt like I, I was really onto something. At the same time, all of this interactive cable TV stuff, I went and visited uh, with people I'd gotten to know from at Viacom and Time Warner and TCI, and I reached the conclusion that that whole stuff was hype that was never going to matter because there was no technical or business bootstrap. All those people were working on vastly divergent architectures. Every set-top box had its own chipset, its own operating system, its own programming tools. And one of the things I knew from, from Microsoft is you needed uh, cohesion and uh, commonality to have application platforms that would have scale and uh, sufficient robustness so you could build compelling applications and services. And so it seemed to me that whole interactive TV thing, while well-intentioned, was started by people 
individually and collectively who didn't understand. They were analog guys who understood the need to have, you know, modulation protocols for how you uh, you allocate the spectrum or uh, or signal on a, on a on a cable, but they didn't understand software architectures. So I reached the conclusion that that wasn't going to bootstrap, but at the same time that this whole you know TCP/IP-based uh, uh, you know, uh, magical combination of TCP/IP, uh, DNS, and distributed networking, the HTTP protocol, uh, and the web browser was this amazing self-replicating bootstrap machine. And so, thought about, okay, how do we inter- integrate uh, uh, time-based media into this? And so, I pulled together. This is now into the uh, uh, late fall, uh, probably. Uh, early spring of 1994, uh, I pulled together a team of some people who I, in one case, a guy I knew before, who was a friend of mine from Microsoft named Mark O'Brien, who had left Microsoft and was doing independent programming. Uh, he was moving around. He was living in, he was, lived in Boston, then he moved to Michigan, then he moved back to Boston. I think he was still living in Boston at the time for the first go-round, but Mark was uh, someone I was, wasn't as one of my closest friends, and uh, he knew Windows programming super well. Uh, and then I rummaged around through friends of friends and found, because I didn't want to take any Microsoft guys because mm-hmm. I was still affiliated with Microsoft, but through some people I knew at Microsoft, they knew somebody who was a audio uh, uh, codex uh, expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we looked at various audio, uh, we, we analyzed various um, audio codecs for both uh, computational complexity, well, computational complexity, audio quality, and bit rate to try to see if there was a cocktail of existing technologies we could put together that would allow for, uh, for streaming uh, over, uh, uh, over of audio. Because one of the early conclusions I reached was that you want to do something that was real-time responsive, and so therefore streaming was going to be much more advantageous than downloading. One right, of the other could I could I just interrupt you real yeah. quick because you never named the person? Was that Phil Barrett that you're doing this no, with? Or? No, Phil Barrett came later on. Okay, okay. The, the, the first consultant we used too. The first consultant was a guy named Randy Goldberg. Okay, uh, he never became an employee. The the two guys that had a long term project involved with this project was a guy named Tom Boutel. Um and I met Tom because Tom was the moderator of the FAQ of the, on WWW, mm-hmm. and Tom was just a guy. Uh, who was working at Cold Springs Harbor Research Lab in Long Island, who was a telecommuter, super smart guy, great guy. Um, and I just started corresponding with Tom, and it turned out the guy knew more about the web uh, than, like, anybody I could find. And he was not – his day job was doing uh, uh, programming for Cold Springs Harbor uh, Research Facility, which was you know, government research thing. was fine. But he had this huge passion about the web, so I said, hey – Tom, why don't you come out to Seattle and, and help uh, help build a, a distributed web system for media delivery? So Tom actually relocated to Seattle, uh, was one of our very, very first employees. Then uh, in the uh, by the sort of the spring, early summer, just me and those three guys, um, we got a demo to the sort of the Watson, come here, I need you, that showed that if you had a computer and you dialed into it with a 14.4 modem and you clicked on a hyperlink, we could do direct real-time streaming of that audio uh, uh, into, uh, at that point, we had a client. We did a web plugin later into a client that was, it was invoked from a link, uh, from, an H- from an HTML link uh, in the web browser. So you see a link in Mosaic, a Mosaic, 
you click on it, it brings up a little client software on a Windows computer, and it real-time streams the audio. And because the, the key is, as I interrupted you before, is because bandwidth being what it was, it has to stream. There's, there's not the ability to do downloads. They would take, you know, 12, 24 hours or whatever. So you have to be able to stream it as close to real-time as possible. Yes, we made three or four uh, what turned out to be important technical decisions. The first was to do streaming uh, rather than, uh, than full downloading. Uh, and uh, at, at the time, there were a few people that were putting audio files up. Um, there was uh, uh, Ayuma, I think may have been up already. I forget when Ayuma went up. Uh, there was uh, Carl, uh, well, I'm spitting on his last name, should have prepped for this uh, interview better, who had an internet audio talk archive that was well, Carl Malamud. Uh, and that was it was an important public service thing. He would take audio public events and the like and do interviews with them and he put them up and those were downloaded and they they were compressed audio, but they were still full file downloads. Uh, so one of the decisions was, was was, hey, we got to stream it, which meant inventing a streaming protocol, which we did. Uh, one of the decisions was let's do audio first. Let's delay video while video was sexy and exciting. And I'd done digital video at Microsoft. I knew that the bit rates required to do video well. Uh, were not really compatible with dial-up, and certainly not 14.4 or 28.8 modem bit rates. And then the third thing, which we kind of came to later on, is when we looked at the codecs we were able to use uh, and the bit rates we were able to get, uh, they really didn't handle polyphonic content very well. So we decided to focus more on voice content for Real Audio One. We quickly moved to to music um, within the next you know six months to a year, and when you got up to 56k modems or even 28.8, you could do higher bit rate music codecs that work. But the very, very first ones, the Watson, come here, I need you, were eight kilobit uh, 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 kelp uh, variant codecs that were really good on uh, simple signals but didn't handle polyphonic audio very well. And so that was, those set of uh, design decisions turned out to be uh, fortuitous, good, take your pick, uh, because they aligned us with something that could really um, uh, when the web turned commercial next year or so, uh, deliver a much, much better experience than people who were probably had bigger research teams than us, but they were sort of trying to solve the general problem rather than a more useful specific subset. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind. With Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. And how soon are you able to get it uh, inside the browser as opposed to being a separate client? So, so, well, so what happened was, so we had this prototype, and I was pretty careful uh, who I showed it to because I, 
I figured we had something pretty significant. So I showed it to Mitch Caper because I feel like I feel like he's a good friend. I trusted him, super smart guy. And also he had connected me up to the guys who sort of first saw um, uh, the, uh, uh, who I first saw the first web browser. Um, and Mitch thought this was great. He said he, he was interested in, in being helpfully involved. This is now sort of the, probably at this point, the summer um, of 94. Um, and, uh, uh, and then I, then it says, all right, let's go for it. So uh, I had been uh, fortunate at Microsoft and that I had uh, had been there early and before the company was public. And uh, so I had some resources that I could put aside. And so I, I said, let's, let's, let's build a little team here. Uh, we had, uh, we had Tom, I mentioned, uh, Mark O'Brien was working remotely. Uh, at some point we switched out uh, the, the, the compression guy to get somebody who could move to Seattle and, and be in core in the team there. Then a crucial hire in the fall of, of 94 was Phil Barrett. Uh, who uh, was one of the best uh, development uh, uh, heads I ever had a chance to work with at Microsoft. Super smart, but also a very practical guy. Uh, and Phil, um, Phil and I had stayed in touch when I was Microsoft, and uh, it just turned out that he was open to making a, a change at the time, which I'm uh, eternally grateful for because you know we were you know we're like a four-person company at the time, and you know it was a it was a pretty gutsy thing for Phil to take that leap of faith, and uh, uh, Phil Phil did. And then he joined us, and he built out the engineering and product team. Uh, and then we we recruited in a couple more folks. Uh, and and at this point, it was it was clear we were onto something. Um, and so uh, we did in early 1995. We raised a little bit of money, uh, a couple million dollars from some angels. Mitch Caper led the round, uh, so we'd have enough money to launch. Uh, at that point, uh, uh, I thought we really had something pretty amazing, and kind of wanted to get it out and, and see what happened. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, but we were, remember this, the, 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 you asked about the browser integration question. Mm-hmm. So in the fall of 94, uh, which is where I first met Mark Andreessen, uh, there was a, uh, second or third, uh, worldwide web conference was in Chicago, as I believe. Uh, and so I went there and, uh, with my little computer setup, and I showed this, uh, to, to Mark Andreessen, uh, and I forget where Mark was. In the, at the time in terms of the steps of leaving NCSA and moving out to California and forming what was first called Mosaic Communications and became Netscape. Right. I think Mark had already left uh, and was in California, but, but uh, Mosaic Communications uh, had either just, either they announced there or they were showing it privately, but they hadn't announced. So I, I saw what, we, what was then being called the Netscape browser um, uh, I showed it to this uh, streaming technology to Mark, and Mark got excited about it, and he said, "Yeah, I'll, I would uh, love to support that. Let's let's implement a plugin architecture so we can do plug. We can support uh, your uh, audio uh, uh, player as a plugin to the browser." Uh, so the first discussions were between us and us and Netscape uh, were in uh, uh, late 1994, early 1995, and then at the time we knew that Microsoft was also trying to get into the browser in a very uh, significant way. So contacted some friends at Microsoft and obviously uh, explained what we we're trying to do. And uh, 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 and they also agreed that they would create a way for us to do a plug-in. So, uh, at the, so then we, we basically had pretty much everything we needed to launch other than content. Uh, so through some friends, uh, one, one of the things we decided to do, which was also a good decision, was not just to launch a technology and hope that uh, people could do something useful with it, but to actually build some apps ourselves 
and get some content. So we did uh, uh, two most significant deals with National Public Radio uh, and with ABC News, mm-hmm. uh, where they had content that was people would find compelling, but that was pretty uh, uh, time sensitive. So you would, you know, NPR would do All Things Considered or Morning Edition or these shows, and they get broadcast once, and then they sort of disappear, even though they had really interesting on archival value. Uh, ABC would do headline news, they do sports, and if you didn't happen to be listening on the top of the hour, you'd miss them. And so we built, we, we, we did two-way deals with them, where we licensed them, our technology for them to use in any way they wanted, and we licensed their content so we could build applications that showcase their technology, their content, and our technology. So we pulled all this together, it was pretty frantic times, I remember, you know, not getting a lot of sleep. Um, and then in April of 95, uh, we launched uh, there were at consecutive weeks, there was a broadcast show, National Association of Broadcasting. And then the same week or a couple of days later, there was an Internet conference in, in San Jose. So we launched Real Audio uh, in that, that, that week in April of 95. And uh, we were paranoid that we wouldn't be first because, you know, by then the, the Netscape browser had shipped and it got a lot of attention. You know, people were starting to talk about the Internet, not just as a research uh, thing, but as a commercial uh, uh, environment. Uh, the first early commercial companies, the Internet, were starting to come out. And so we felt like we were in a race to be uh, not just to be the, the best, but to be the first with a good solution. Um, and uh, we won that race. We launched in April of 95. Uh, we had the ABC 24-7 news available on demand. We had a bunch of the NPR content. Uh, we, had a, uh, we, we, we did satellite signal acquisition for both those content did the satellite, built the apps to integrate those. And at the same, at the same point, we launched a free player. Uh, we've always had a free player going back now 19 years, mm-hmm. ever since April of 95. Uh, and we, our, our initial idea was, well, we'll sell, we'll give away players, we'll give away encoders, and we'll sell the servers for broadcasting, and then we'll go from there. So, so that the, was, the Netscape model. It was, it was similar to Netscape model. Yeah. Netscape a little bit of a variant in how they worked with uh, – uh, uh, with enterprises where they would sell a commercial license to the browser to enterprises, uh, we we ended up selling a premium consumer version of the of the real play we call the Real Audio Player Plus, right. starting in the summer of '96, I believe. Uh, but uh, but we didn't we didn't cleave it with uh, enterprise versus consumer. We just did it uh, free versus premium. Right, and I I know you have a hard out in terms of time here, so. Um, uh... You you guys do eventually do video in in ninety seven. Um, yeah, so so we in, we 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 I'll just I'll do, I'll do the fast forward. So sure. Launched in ninety five. We knew we were onto something magical when the first forty eight hours people had downloaded the product in like twenty five countries around the world. I mean, we just you know we're you know at that point I think we did, I don't think we did twenty people. We had like eighteen twenty people in Seattle. You know, we we had uh, hired a head of internet ops who was a brilliant guy named Jerry Black who. We interviewed over the internet. He was based in Kwajalein in the Marshall Islands, and he managed to uh, build internet connectivity in Marshall Islands. We figured anybody who can do that can probably build a pretty good internet stack uh, and a service operation for us here in Seattle. So we thought we had uh, you know, a pretty scrappy way to build something that would, would hold up, um, and we distributed uh, our, our players for free um, uh, first, and had a, uh, a uh, uh, a, a, a basic version of the server, a trial version, but the main version of the server was a paid product and launched that. Then, as I said, a year later, we launched the premium version of the player. And then a year after that, in 97, so about two years in, we launched Real Video. 
which was not the first uh, video product because a few other people followed on. But we, we'd like to think it was the first good one that actually worked because we put the same level of attention and care to making sure that we could do we did we technically supported dial up on 56k modems which was okay if the video was small and there wasn't too much motion involved uh one of the things we did there is we actually uh, hired spike lee to do a couple of short movies uh that would showcase uh this technology uh and uh he did an amazing job creating these great short films uh i think you can still find them out there somewhere on the internet i, I i'll uh uh, after this interview, it'll stimulate me to find uh, find where they are. I haven't watched them recently. But the one that was the craziest one was he uh, he said, I want to do a show about this great, the guy who created this uh, show, Bring in the Funk, Bring in the Noise, this tap dancer named Saving Glover. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing about that thinking, how the heck are we going to compress the video so you'll actually be able to see the tap dancer over 56K modems? But it was a short enough clip, and we were able to do a little hand-tuning on it uh, and so we were able to, to show the first short films that worked decently over 56K modem, and they really shined on ISDN or cable modems. And that was right at the time that the cable modem world, the DOCSIS standard came about. It was starting to be coalescence around broadband. So it was still, in 97, it was early enough for us to stake out a real leadership position in video as well. Right, and, and by, by the, the end of the 90s, something like 85% of all the audio and video on the net is basically served via via real media, right? We, I, you know, you can count it lots of different ways. Certainly, of the stream content, we had very high market share. Uh, there was obviously, you know, downloaded content, and there were other other methods of content. But but we we really we really hit that uh, hit the market quite uh, quite nicely there in the in the period where uh, standards like H.264 weren't out there. Uh, the the uh, the choices were were you know only proprietary formats, and in that era, we were the the most uh, most popular uh, uh, format and delivery system by far. Uh, if I could trouble you for one more question, um, most of the people I'm speaking to, the stuff we're talking about is exactly 20 years ago, and this is true for this sort of stuff as well. So now, 20 years on, especially with digital media, is it has it reached what you imagined it would be 20 years ago? Is it better? Has it not reached what you imagined yet? Or what do you think digital media is like today? based on what you were dreaming of 20 years ago? So I would say uh, we've made incredible progress and uh, obviously proud in our, our pioneering role in catalyzing that and getting the ball rolling. And, you know, I, I ran real for a little over 15 years and then I left in about two years ago, I came back and now we're reinventing real networks for the future, which is, which is what I spend my day job on. The reinvention for the future is ex- Everybody basically is carrying a video uh, camera and a video phone in their pocket. Uh, but uh, we don't yet have a period of time where we can, I can just pick up the phone and call you and have a video call like to, uh, you know, like, like a voice call. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. So that's an, that one has taken longer than I thought. And, yes, people use Skype and, uh, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a little bit of it, but it's not – we're not in the Dick Tracy period yet. And I'm, that one surprised me. Second thing is – Video is still uh, somewhat of a Tower of Babel, where you create a video uh, on your phone, and it's not clear, you know, that you'll be able to get it across to all the devices you want. If you do, will it be a low-res product version? Uh, will it be a high-res that'll take forever to deliver? So there's a bunch of work, and that's one of the main things we're working on with Real Player Cloud to make video work uh, seamlessly across devices. A third one is 
this whole uh, Tower of Babel around digital rights management uh, with video is still a mess. So if you buy a video on uh, Apple, it won't play on uh, on a, a Google device. If you buy from Amazon, uh, you can't play it unless you're unless you're on a device that has Amazon client support. You know, if you buy on Google Play, you can't play it on an iPhone. So that kind of ridiculousness, uh, I would have thought that there would have been either a consumer rebellion against uh, or uh, industry coalescence around better solutions. So there's a bunch of stuff that's magical. Uh, you know, the the uh, uh, all of the phenomenon of, of uh, you know, how uh, uh, the aggregate of uh, all of the YouTube content uh, and all of the independent ways people can create, be their own broadcaster and reach very large audiences, all that stuff's great. But there's still a bunch of stuff around compatibility on the one hand uh, and uh, and sort of uh, having video be in every part of everyone's lives that where well, there's still meaningful work to do. And, you know, it's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm back here at Real is uh, we're tackling a bunch of those problems. Well, Rob, uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, remember all this for us. Well, it's fun. It's a little bit uh, jarring the memories. And uh, uh, I think I got most of the names right for the one or two that I uh, uh, didn't remember. I apologize for that. But, you know, 20 years of a lot, to, a lot of water under the bridge. If you're enjoying this podcast, there's one simple thing that you can do to help us out. If you do nothing else, just go to iTunes and rate us. One to five stars takes about two seconds. Or give us a review because the weird way that iTunes works is it's not just the number of downloads, it's also the number of ratings and reviews. As always, you can join the conversation at www.internethistorypodcast.com. Get more info, see pictures, and see my full bibliography for each episode. The show's Twitter is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.